Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, the CEO of the DSR Network and host of the Deep State Radio podcast. Here at DSR, we have always believed that in a world as complex, fast-moving, and full of risks as ours, we all need access to the best minds. That is why we have created the leading network for expert podcasts on the issues of the day you care about. We go in-depth on politics, the law, national security, foreign policy, intelligence, defense, climate, and new technologies with regular and special guests that are the leading voices in their fields. We also offer daily updates on global news, our DSR Daily, and on a key story of the day through our partnership with the New Republic. That is why over a million times a month, people like you choose to spend time with our hosts and guests. Membership is what supports this, and members get special benefits, including bonus content in virtually all of our podcasts. It's a big deal, and it's a good deal. Our monthly membership price is going to go up for the first time in our history on March 1st. So now is the time you can lock in our founder's rate of just $5 a month. To do so, go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. It's that easy, but don't delay. Today's rates will only be available for a few more weeks. Join us, support us. Go to the dsrnetwork.com right now. Thank you. This is the Daily Blast from the New Republic, produced and presented by the DSR Network. I'm your host, Greg Sargent. Later this month, Nikki Haley will mount a last stand of sorts against Donald Trump in the South Carolina primary. Trump is expected to win by a lopsided margin, and she may fight on until Super Tuesday in March, but at this point, few expect Trump to have any serious difficulties wrapping up the GOP nominations sooner rather than later. If Haley does succumb, a big reason for this will be white evangelical voters. They now make up an essential component of Trump's MAGA base, and their support for him seems unshakable through impeachments, scandals, revelations about sexual assault, multiple serious criminal prosecutions, and even an insurrection attempt. Today, we're talking to Sarah Posner, a great scholar of the religious right who has authored numerous books on the topic, to shed some light on what has become one of the most important but least understood phenomenons in our politics. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for having me, Greg. First, some quick numbers on GOP primaries. Trump destroyed Haley among white evangelical voters by 53% to 13% in Iowa and 70 to 26 in New Hampshire. He leads among them in one poll by 69 to 22 in South Carolina, where more than half of GOP voters are white evangelicals, per one estimate. So if and when Trump finishes off Haley, his white evangelical support will be a big part of the story, right, Sarah? Absolutely. It's how he won in 2016 and how he managed to stay in power throughout impeachments and scandals through his first term. Yeah, and you and religion writer Robert Jones have pointed out, actually, that Trump's support among white evangelicals has multiplied many times over relative to the 2016 primaries. 
They've gone over to Trump in extraordinary numbers, essentially insulating him from any primary challenge, almost like an army. Can you talk about that? Well, despite initial concerns about Trump in the 2016 primary, once he captured the nomination, white evangelicals were all in with him. And then over the course of his presidency, their access to the White House, his nomination of Supreme Court justices, and his embrace of not only their policy goals, but their ideology, um, really made them devoted to him in a way that is unprecedented for Republican presidents since the founding of the religious right in the 80s. Yeah. And and in terms of that bigger picture, at one level, this isn't just a story about Trump and white evangelicals. It's a story about the white white evangelical takeover of the Republican Party. In a nutshell, how did that happen? That happened because Paul Weyrich, who was the architect of what at the time was called the New Right, an effort in the 1970s to create a conservative movement that they thought would counter uh, what they viewed as the excesses of the 1960s. He set out deliberately to make a partnership uh, between political conservatives and what he believed to be um, white Christians in the heartland who had been ignored by and were ignoring electoral politics. So he worked together with various uh, pastors and religious leaders. Obviously, people remember names like Jerry Falwell and James Dobson to put together a powerful political infrastructure that tied together the Republican Party and the evangelical world. And as a result of this union, the evangelical world also grew, expanding beyond churches, creating more politically oriented organizations, advocacy organizations, so that what we see today in terms of the Republican Party's reliance on white evangelical voters electorally was part of an infrastructure that was built back in the late 1970s and 1980s. Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing story. Pat Robertson died recently, and and he really is an essential piece of the story of today's Republican Party. But I want to talk about uh, Nikki Haley and why she's so weak among these voters. So Haley is a globalist, you know, UN ambassador and the child of immigrants. Trump has attacked her as too permissive on immigration even though she holds what were for a long time standard GOP positions on immigration. Um, Those things do predispose white evangelicals against her, maybe. Um, Clearly, this reflects a Christian nationalist strain among white evangelicals, right? Can you talk about the relationship between Christian nationalism and white evangelical politics and why Haley is on the losing end of all of this? Well, It's become fashionable to call it Christian nationalism, but it's really the same thing as white evangelicalism. White evangelicals believe that God intended America to be a Christian nation um, and that America has strayed from uh, that Christian founding. And it's their duty as patriotic Christians to engage in both spiritual warfare and political action to take America back and restore its Christian founding. Um, That is basically what has been taught, politically speaking, in uh, white evangelical circles for the last 40 or so years, 40, 50 years. 
Um, we're calling it white nationalism now, but it's really the same thing. Um, so why is Nikki Haley not getting traction in the space? Well, the first answer to that question is Donald Trump. Uh, their loyalty to him is unyielding. Uh, and they believe that, uh, for example, that he was the rightful winner of the, many of them believe that he was the rightful winner of the 2020 election, uh, and that it's, you know, God's intention that he be restored to the White House. So she's got that against her. That's an uphill battle in the first place. Um, but I think, uh, they're something that maybe is not as measurable, uh, there's a lot of polling that shows that they're very committed to the stolen election lie. Um, there's a lot of other sentiments that I think maybe aren't as measurable with polling data, such as she's a woman. I think that there's a fair segment of evangelicals who don't believe that a woman should be president. She's not white. Um, even though I think she, you know, she, her family was sick and she converted to Christianity uh, and that is still probably not enough for them, probably distrustful of the fact that she's, uh, her family were immigrants from another country, uh, particularly a country of brown people, <clears throat> excuse me, brown people. Um, and so I think also she has been the victim of Trump's control over the narrative uh, and so his attacks on her, just like his attacks on Ron DeSantis, can be lethal among his base. Uh, so, for example, uh, he's attacked her as soft on immigration for uh, on a policy level, um, but he's also going after her for allegedly uh, being trying to steal the primary from him uh, in Indiana. He's claiming his people are claiming, and he's claiming that she illegally or fraudulently got on the primary ballot. Uh, and so it's really hard for someone, even someone who's been governor of a deeply evangelical state like South Carolina and was an ambassador in Trump's administration. She served Trump. Yet I think it's just so hard for anybody to break through that mindset of his white evangelical base that God anointed him to save America at this critical juncture in its history uh, it's really hard to break that, uh, even if even if she's somebody who was mildly admired in these circles before Trump. Yeah, I, you raise a really interesting point, and it gets at one of the mysteries of Trump, right? Which is that he has this way of communicating with voters like white evangelicals in in, in a way that's almost mysterious. He can talk about policy, but he's there are actually other overtones that they're hearing, and I think this is where we need to bring in great replacement theory. The, the idea that elites, often Jews, are scheming to replace native-born Americans by opening the floodgates to non-white immigrants and suppressing native birth rates with wokeism and LGBTQ rights and so forth. Here's a number for you. Uh, in 2023, the Public Religion Research Institute found that a whopping 61% of white evangelicals agree that, quote, immigrants are invading our country and replacing our cultural and ethnic background, close quote. Can you talk about this notion as it's understood by white evangelicals slash Christian nationalists and, and why it's particularly potent when infused with this kind of religious fervor? Well, when they talk about God intended America to be a Christian nation, the subtext is God intended America to be a white Christian nation. So 
the affinity between white evangelicals and the messages given by Fox News or Tucker Carlson uh, on great replacement theory or claims that there's a migrant invasion, uh, that sort of rhetoric resonates with white evangelicals who fear that the white Christian America of their imagination, of their nostalgic imagination, has been overtaken by, you know, sexual libertines, groomers, secularists, feminists, immigrants. There's a whole basket of enemies of their domination of America's culture and politics. And that's really at the heart of it, what they fear. They fear demographic change. Uh, They've made uh, liberalism and the Democratic Party into this bogeyman of buzzwords that they use, like DEI and woke and the homosexual agenda. There's a whole laundry list of these phrases that they sometimes some of them go out of fashion and then they get recycled and retooled for a new decade. But it's all really the same thing. They used to rail against political correctness. Now they rail against woke. But it's all part of this package that white Christian control of our institutions and our government is slipping away from them. Yeah, and I, I think it's important to bear down on this idea that that the anti-LGBTQ and anti-woke stuff isn't just a cultural argument. It's also, at least sometimes, uh, dovetails with with the Great Replacement argument because the argument is that that fertility rates among native-born Americans are being suppressed by these cultural, uh, I don't know what you, what cultural weapons, so to speak, right? Um, and so you, you you have you have a dovetailing of the anti woke and anti LGBTQ stuff with the anti immigrant slash great replacement theory stuff. I mean, Trump said dovetailing also with one of their long standing enemies and bogeyman, which is Planned Parenthood. Right, of course, right. That's I, I should have brought that up. That's clearly one of the weapons that's being used to to at least in the imaginations of some people, to, to suppress uh, reproduction among native-born Americans. I mean, it, it, it's no accident that Trump said that migrants are, quote, poisoning the blood of our country uh, in the run-up to these primaries, right? That's an explicit declaration of an even more virulent form of great replacement theory. I, I think it's been called white genocide theory, positing a secret plot to dilute the white race out of existence. When when Trump says that phrase, poisoning the blood of our country, what do white evangelicals hear in it? Well, I think something that's really interesting about that, I mean, also it's horrifying, obviously. Uh, but in 2016, that was the kind of, Trump was able to pull together in 2016 an alt-right base and the white evangelical base. And in 2016, his pitch to white evangelicals was uh, illegal immigrants are criminals, right? Mexican rapists coming to our country. He loved those stories about uh, an illegal immigrant who had committed a crime in San Francisco or something. You know, he had these ones that he recycled over and over again. And it was the alt-right that really pushed a lot of the much more kind of 
the white genocide narrative, right? That immigration is the, actually the, the destruction of equals the destruction of the white race. And I felt like in 2016, he kind of kept those two streams separate, focusing more on the crimes part for the white evangelical base and winking and nodding a lot with the alt-right when they would post these quote unquote white genocide memes on Twitter. Now it's all merged together. So him saying that migrants are poisoning the blood of our country, well, he's already got the white evangelicals enraptured with him and believing that he was anointed by God. So now he can just go whole hog on these much more ugly fascist uh, phrases and claims uh, and really gets no pushback from either base. You know, it's interesting that you, you make that comparison that he actually kind of kept it at a little bit of arm's length before, because right now, a, a quote unquote, soft version of great replacement theory is really mainstreamed at the highest levels of Republican power. I mean, you have uh, the House Speaker, Mike Johnson, and I want to get to him a little bit later in this discussion. Uh, Mike Johnson and Elise Stefanik, and, uh, who's another House GOP leader, and many other re Republicans and, and right-wing personalities talking up a version of great replacement theory, which says, oh, they're just importing Democratic voters. See, we're, we're not talking about race here. We're talking about uh, politics, right? Political dilution. But it's all coded towards that same place, which is there's this kind of essential America that's being diluted beyond recognition and erased to, to, to the point of, of, of disappearance um, and, and that you should be absolutely ter terribly frightened by it all. Yes, I, I think that's absolutely true. And I think that Trump has given these Republican politicians permission to say these things, whereas before, I think they might have been a little bit more concerned about being called out for it or um, being exposed or accused of having said something racist. But the fact that he stayed in power during his first term, despite all the scandals and everything else, the fact that he somehow has engaged in an insurrection and might you know, completely get away with it, uh, and the fact that he's the presumptive nominee for 2024, I think makes them all look at him and say, huh, okay, well, maybe we couldn't say those things before, but now we can. We There are no repercussions. In fact, there are not only no repercussions, but it makes the base even more excited for us. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, so do you think that someone like, I, I think Mike Johnson is obviously a true believer in many ways, Elise Stefanik has maybe no true beliefs, right? So that's right. Some, right. So someone like Stefanik, clearly is recognizing where the GOP, GOP base is going when she says this kind of stuff, right? I think she's an opportunist. She sees that Trump is the person with all the power and all the clout, and she wants in. I think that's clearly what's going on with Stefanik. Right. Everything is a performance for Trump. Uh, and with Johnson, I mean, he is, I think if you were to make a politician if you were to think in, say, 1990 or 2000, let's create a politician in a Petri dish that white evangelicals will like. 
and it would be Mike Johnson. <laughs> yeah, um, no, and I think it's perfect. Yeah, and I think that he also is of this mindset that Trump is the leader that the base and the party must submit to. And so I think that Johnson may not be all in on the great replacement theory stuff. He's more of a just, you know, I I don't like secularism and queer people and abortion kind of guy. Um, but I think he sees no other alternative than if Trump is God's anointed, then it's his responsibility to be submissive to the Oh, to, to that's fascinating. So he he's recognizing he he is recognizing that Trump is God's plan. Well, I think that that view is so widespread and common in, in among evangelicals that I would be surprised if he doesn't think it. I mean, he also thinks that it was God's plan that he be speaker. Um, and you know, Mike Pence also, I think, until January sixth. Uh, believed this too. And one of the things that I always thought when Trump was president, that Mike Pence's role as his vice president was to model for other evangelicals and for other Republicans, the proper way to be submissive to Trump. And at the time that he, the one time he did not submit to Trump, which of course was on January 6th, uh, caused a break, not only between him and Trump, but really between him and the Republican Party as a whole. He recall the ancient history of this Republican primary for 2024. I think Mike Pence could barely muster what less than one percent of the vote. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and you actually put your finger on something that I find endlessly fascinating about Pence in January 6th, which is that there's actually a divide on the Christian right about January 6th, right? Recall that um, one of the things that Pence did when he tried to explain to the Republican electorate why he didn't help Trump destroy our democracy, he invoked his religion very pointedly. He wrote about it in his book, and he said it in numerous public interviews. And, and I don't remember exactly what his argument was, but it was something like his Christian duty did require him to, to do the right thing by the Constitution on on January sixth. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that divide there? That view of Christian duty is clearly uh, not something that a whole lot of Republican voters and Republican politicians hew to now, right? That's right. I think you might see it as a relic of the Reagan or the Bush era that an evangelical would see it as their Christian duty to defend the Constitution and uphold the Constitution. Uh, that, at the time, I think, was the prevailing, let's call it, Christian nationalist view, that if God intended America to be a Christian nation and God ordained the Constitution as the, the guiding document for the Christian nation, then obviously it's your Christian duty to uphold the Constitution. But now the view of it, and I think that this was certainly a view of some segments of the religious right before Trump, but again, it's a situation of him get, having given permission to say the quiet part out loud. Now I think the prevailing view is 
God is telling us to engage in a spiritual and political war to take our country back, to take a Christian America back. So we will do whatever it takes to make that happen. If God is telling us that Trump is the anointed president of the United States and that he needs to be in office, then obviously the election was stolen from him and Joe Biden is the illegitimate president of the United States. Yeah, I think that's so important because it's it's hard to 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 imagine this, but it seems that January 6th actually was part of the set of factors that cemented Trump's hold on on white evangelicals, right? We often hear in the discourse things like, "Oh, many GOP voters don't think Trump did anything wrong with his insurrection." Many GOP voters think, "Oh, okay, he actually did win the election." But I think you've written this that it was actually seen as an affirmative good January 6th by untold numbers of white evangelicals that a number of leading figures turned it into an event invested with great significance as if the the January 6th sort of itself represented a, a, a stand against the slide into demographic, moral and secular ruin that's happening right now. Is that is that about right? I think that's right. I mean, I think that there was certainly... I think that there were, for example, there were activists who were involved in these uh, Jericho marches, these events that claimed that they were going to, uh, just like when Joshua's army invaded Jericho and the the walls fell, that they were going to make the walls of the deep state fall and that God's will that Trump be reelected would be accomplished. And I think a lot of those people were really invested in that narrative. Some of them, I think, were surprised or disconcerted that it turned violent, but that they were nonetheless, and certainly there were certainly uh, people who I think you could identify as having these kinds of beliefs who engaged in the violence. Some of them have been convicted of crimes. But I think ultimately, just the notion that they were out there doing this spiritual warfare, believing that God's will would eventually be accomplished because it, it was just against God's will for Joe Biden to be president. God wants wanted Trump to be back in the White House. Uh, and I think that that explains a lot about the, the turn away from Mike Pence and the ongoing support of Trump. He was brave enough and willing enough to put it all on the line to carry out God's will. Yeah, and and so when someone like Nikki Haley tries to prosecute the case against Trump by saying something along the lines of, you know, January sixth, it, it, it was, it showed that he's he represents chaos. Like they try to find some soft way to indict Trump for January sixth, right? That won't offend Republican voters, right? Something like, oh, it shows that he's he he represents chaos and the criminal indictments against him for January 6th show he's a weak candidate. Not that, you know what I mean? It's always a soft way of, of indicting it. Right. But, but when I, I think what you're saying is a white evangelical, you're, you're a lot of white evangelical voters hear that. And what they're, what they want to hear is an affirmative statement of support for January 6th, which is how they understand it as a kind of stand against all these demonic forces that are conspiring to to prevent Trump from assuming his his God anointed place 
in 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 the Christian in the white Christian nation, right? Well, yes, but also I am not sure these voters are hearing a lot of what Nikki Haley says. Um, I subscribe to a lot of you know email blasts and newsletters, and I read a lot of their media. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of coverage that there's even really a primary going on, um, even when DeSantis was still in the race and really kind of trying to be Trump light. Uh, so I'm not even convinced that her statements about Trump are being heard and evaluated, because I think for such a huge segment of the Republican base and the, his evangelical base, they know they're going to vote for Trump in the primary. So what is this exercise that we're going through? Now, I do think that there are some evangelicals, Republican evangelicals, who are disconcerted by Trump. These are the people I think you're seeing vote for Haley or Ron DeSantis in Iowa. But they're not disconcerted necessarily by his policies, but more that they don't really, maybe they don't like January 6th, or maybe they don't like how crude and rude he is, or that he's a liar. But this is a small segment we're talking about. Uh, and I don't think at the end of the day, these are really voters who are going to vote uh, Democratic in November. So we're really talking about at the margins, are there people in the evangelical base who are a little disconcerted by Trump? Yes. Is it about, is it because he's destroying democracy? I'm not sure. So I'm not even really sure that her soft attacks on his incitement of January 6th are really going to carry the day for any of these voters. Yeah. And so it seems like Republicans are, are paying a bit of a price to some degree um, for the fact that their base is so so heavily uh, white evangelical and white Christian nationalist and so forth, I mean they're losing winnable races in 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 places that are true swing country because of candidates like Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania, who's a white Christian nationalist and and um, clearly a, a, a zealot, um, got blown out. And 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 people like Carrie Lake, who I'm not sure where she fits in on the spectrum. She seems like she's sort of half a true believer and half an Elise Stefanik type. Um, yeah. Right. But the, yeah. I mean, the, this this sort of extremism that is extracting a price from the party, right? I mean, think about Pennsylvania, right? That, that's a place that Trump won in 2016, but now not in 2020. Right. Right. right exactly. You I know, think. I think well, I think a couple things are going on. And one of them is that, yes, voters in Pennsylvania perceived Doug Mastriano as a right wing loon. But a lot of voters don't see Trump that way. They don't see Trump himself that way. They see him as the uh, you know apprentice host or the real estate mogul or as the guy who gives rambling speeches, but he says that he wouldn't sign in a, a nationwide abortion ban. So maybe he's not so extreme, right? These are kind of the views that people have of him and they're wrong, right? They're wrong, but for some reason, he doesn't read to voters like a Doug Mastriano or a Carrie Lake. And even when somebody tries to mimic him to become 
to try to out MAGA him like Ron DeSantis, it falls flat. He is the only one who can pull this off, which is, I guess, comforting and not comforting at the same time. Well, I, I think you're putting your, your finger on a very deep irony here. That uh, something uh, there's something about Trump's political genius, if that's the right word for it, that that's on display with this, right? So on the one hand, all the all the debauchery, the materialism, the affairs, the sexual assault, right, the crudeness, the cursing, the violence, those things. Maybe for a lot of white evangelical voters, they see that as, well, you know, this is just God working in mysterious ways, right? But that stuff codes to non-evangelical voters, swing voters, as a sign that he's not one of them, that he's not, as you put it, a loon. (laughs) Isn't that an interesting kind of, I mean, what do you think of that? Does that make sense to you? Well, so the evangelicals, will claim that sometimes God chooses an unlikely leader at a critical juncture in a nation's history. And Trump is that leader. Um, and I think that part, that, that sounds a little loopy, right? That you would, you believe that, you know, so you're, you're, you're going to make your decision on who to vote for, for president on this idea that God might've chosen an unlikely leader, but I think it's partially that I think that there's a political calculus there for leaders who press that argument on voters, which is that they know that he's not going to read like them to swing voters or independent voters or even maybe some Democratic voters, that he's going to read as something else. And so I think that to a certain extent, they sort of see him as a, a sort of an ace in the hole, that they know that the evangelical base is enthralled with him and that may be other voters can't detect that or don't know about it. And uh, that he just might seem like a bombastic businessman to some voters. And they kind of like that idea. Right. I mean, there's almost, a, ironically enough, there's almost a Lucifer-like quality to, to it. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, his ability to, to sort of code to all these different sides all at once is is lucifer like well let's not forget that trump gets a lot of help from the political press which gives him a lot of passes yeah on his relationship uh with the religious right his relationship with or his 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 affinity with white nationalists and basically with his extreme policy initiatives and his extreme fascist governing ambitions for his 2024, if he were to win the 2024 election. So I think if the press covered him more honestly and, and, and regularly pointed out and focused on any of those things, uh, then you know, maybe maybe voters wouldn't have that perspective on him. I think that the press has very much both sides. Well, you know, Trump is under four indictments, but Joe Biden is very old, right? So, right, you know, as right. long as we keep having that kind of false equivalence, it's going to be hard for voters to who don't spend their days working on these kinds of things like you and I do. So for voters to understand what's going on, the press has to play a role there too. 
Yeah, no question. I mean, if you're Haley, you're looking at all this and you've got to be frustrated. I mean, she's obviously a very accomplished person, right? She's a very good politician. Um, She's compelling and charismatic in her own way. And yet she's just run into this wall. Ultimately, the inevitable dispatching of Haley reflects this big story of what happened to the Republican Party, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, The Republican Party basically let itself become in the thrall of white nationalists and in the thrall of white evangelicals. And on top of that, the evangelical world has undergone a lot of changes since the 1980s. The charismatic wing of evangelicalism has become more prominent, thus placing much more of an emphasis on supernatural occurrences and spiritual warfare and prophecies and anointings and all of these things much more prevalent, not only in the church space, but also in the political space. Trump's embrace of that, contrary to his Republican predecessors, emboldened and uh, and made emboldened a lot of these figures in that world and also made them greater celebrities in that world and greater celebrities in politics. And so they they worked in tandem with each other to support Trump, but also create uh, a greater space for themselves in that kind of wild, charismatic Christian marketplace. Uh, and so we're looking at a different evangelical landscape and we're looking at there, therefore at a different Republican embrace of that landscape. And I think you see it too in the kind of candidates that the Republican Party is putting up. Somebody like Doug Mastriano, who was very embedded in that kind of world and whose you know, campaign stops were just rife with Christian nationalist rhetoric and supernatural occurrences and prophecies and promotion of that sort of thing. And you got to wonder how long the Republican Party can really have that kind of alliance with that kind of religious movement without other people noticing and saying to themselves, what? Yeah. And there's no place for someone like Haley who's trying to tell the party, look, if you want to appeal to the suburban women that you're losing in the Trump era, you've got to soften on abortion. That's just going to fall on a whole lot of deaf ears. Sarah Posner, thank you so much for coming on with us. You've been listening to The Daily Blast with me, your host, Greg Sargent. The Daily Blast is a New Republic podcast and is produced by Riley Fessler and the DSR Network. 